Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because uh, in the end, just about everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com, and uh, got a great panel this week. Uh, joining us again are, as, well, as always, Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Tim. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, Chris Ahrens, our TV and media editor. Thanks for joining us again to talk all things TV. It's been a big week. Yeah, it has. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to get your insights on a lot of the uh, news we've been covering uh, from TV land. And joining us fresh back from uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Katie Richards, staff writer covering agencies and marketing. Uh, Katie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're going to mix things up a little. Usually we start with news and then we talk about ads worth watching and then we get into a big discussion of the week. We've had so many big areas for discussion and so many events going on this week. We're just going to kind of skip the news and we're going to cover most of that uh, when we talk in a few minutes about the Golden Globes, about CES, about uh, the Television Critics Association uh, TV industry event uh, where a lot of news has been coming out of. Uh, So First, I wanted to uh, start off a little different by going to Tim's weekly roundup of the best ads. Ads actually worth your time. We call it Ads Worth Watching. Tim, what have you got for us this week? So, you know, it it actually has still been a little bit of a slow ramp up this year. We know we're 10 or 11 days into January now and uh, haven't seen too much great big work from from big advertisers yet. So actually two of these ads that I'm going to talk about today um, are actually not um, major commercials. They're just sort of, in fact, the very first one we'll talk about is a, a spec ad. So it was done by a student over in Germany, and it was for Adidas. And it's been getting a lot of play. It kind of went viral uh, on YouTube, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have, have seen it. Uh, it basically, the, the plot of the ad is uh, an older man in a retirement home seems to be kind of suffering from some kind of dementia um, and he's not being allowed outside, and whenever whenever he tries to go out, the nurses restrain him. And uh, we learn sort of along the way that he seems to be obsessed with memories of being a runner. Apparently, he was, he was a world-class runner, um, possibly a Olympian marathoner. And we see this sort of through the early parts of the ad. There's old photos on, uh, on his desk, and there's um, he also has this old pair of, of very well-worn Adidas track shoes. And, you know, without giving too much away, it's, it's really nicely made. And there's this sort of one flew over the cuckoo's nest moment at the end um, where the guy gets help from some of his fellow residents uh, at this retirement home to sort of get where he wants to go. And really, really nicely done. You know, we don't write a lot about spec ads, but this one was just 
you know, really, really nicely made. And, and one of our writers, Patrick Coffey, um, spoke to, actually spoke to the guy who, who made it. Uh, Eugen Mehrer is his name. And he's a student at uh, a school called the Film Academy of uh, Baton, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, Württemberg. And Eugen told us sort of all about the making of it. Apparently it was inspired by uh, a a relative's death recently. And uh, there is a movie with a similar plot to this, but but, um, Eugen told us he hadn't seen that movie, only learned about it later. And he did some pretty cool research into, um, I think the reason he chose Adidas versus like a Nike as the brand here was that um, apparently Adidas did used to make a lot of old marathon uh, gear for the Olympics back in the 70s, while, while Nike didn't. So... Um, yeah, kind of funny that the week's—I would say probably the week's best ad—is um, actually was actually a spec ad over the last seven days. So, um, and by the way, this this school, the Film Academy, uh, also seems to be producing um, a lot of students that make great work. Um, you guys probably remember the the spec Johnny Walker ad from the end of 2015. That was also that was also made by two students from the same school. So. Uh, whatever they're teaching there, um, maybe the other the other ad schools should try to pick up on. <laughs> this was one of those ads where, it, you know, I don't know about you, Tim, I, I occasionally something will come along where everyone who does not work in advertising, um, you know, normal people, I would say, uh, suddenly start sending me in mass, like, tell me you've seen this, tell me you're writing about this. And this was one of those ads. It just seemed to have that traction that, and for that to be a spec ad, I think is especially impressive. Uh, but did you see that too, that kind of critical mass around this ad? That, of just breaking through in a way that not much else does. Oh, definitely. And you know, the flip side to that is um, people in advertising kind of criticizing it, um, which often happens with any kind of spec commercials. You know, the, there's obviously um, some divided opinion on the value of spec. Uh, you know, Adidas didn't really want to have anything to do with this ad, and you know, I think a lot of people think that you know, spec ads can sometimes harm a brand. I don't think this would. I mean, the, the, the tagline here is, is break free, which I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think Adidas would ever go for a line like that. It's a little bit too sort of obvious, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, some criticism that it was a copy of this, of this movie. And I don't know if we're, if we can, uh, you know, take Eugene at his word or not, but, but he claims not to have seen it. Uh, at least he had heard about it, he said, but he hadn't seen it. So who knows? I think a lot of the criticism of it may be just a little jealousy, though. I think it's, you know, this guy's got a pretty bright future in the business. Yeah, it will be very cool to see what he, what he does next. So uh, what else do you have for us this week? So the, the second one I wanted to talk about um, actually ran on the Golden Globes. It was uh, a spot starring uh, Drew Barrymore, and it starts out, uh, seems to be uh, a weight loss ad. And Drew's talking about you know, all, how she lost all this weight and she could eat anything she wants on this diet called the Santa Clarita diet. And I'd never heard of, of this diet before. And, and for good reason, it turns out, um, this is just a spoof commercial. I think about halfway through the spot, she, some, you know, the spot starts to get weird because she says, I can satisfy all my cravings and eat whoever I want. And, <laughs> and then she suddenly digs into this bowl of, of flesh and eyeballs and, uh, <laughs> blood starts dripping out of her mouth and uh you you suddenly realize that something's very wrong here this is not the kind of diet you'd want to be on uh and turns out it's a a commercial for uh drew's new show on netflix which premieres i think february 3rd it's called it's called the santa clarita diet and it's a comedy uh apparently she's a cannibal uh, and a real estate executive who turns into a cannibal 
And, you know, I love this ad for a couple of reasons. You know, first of all, Drew Barrymore is exactly the kind of person who might do a weight loss ad like this. They're all obviously so celebrity focused, those comp- those brands. Uh, it's also really well written, you know, lines like, you know, ready to take your life to a whole new level of wow. It's just perfect, perfect satire. And, you know, thirdly, I think great placement on the Golden Globes, which obviously is one of the great Hollywood obsessed broadcasts of the year. So um, Spot was made by Stun Creative in L.A., which does a lot of uh, Hollywood, Hollywood stuff. And, you know, I think it uh, it, it really it hit, a, hit a good note for, for viewers. And I think everybody really loved it on Sunday. Yeah, let's uh, let's listen to a little bit of it. After the first day, I knew this wasn't like any other diet. I satisfy all my cravings and eat whoever I want. And I only eat the foods that deserve it. So there's that one. And then, you know, the third one I want to talk about um, is actually this very low-budget commercial that um, a pet adoption agency, uh, actually a no-kill shelter uh, down in Atlanta called Fur Kids did. And... This is another one of those, you know, non-professional ads that, that really went viral over the past week. This one has, I think, almost five million v- uh, views on YouTube. And uh, Rebecca Colors, who's one of our ad freak freelancers, lives just down the road from this place, so um, she wrote it up for us. And you know, everyone loves these low-budget comedies if they're if they're done really well. And this one's actually three comedies in one. It starts out kind of like a fake infomercial. And then it transitions to more of like almost like a used car commercial. And then it ends up at the very end spoofing um, Sarah McLaughlin's old um, PSAs for the SPCA. <laughs> so uh, it's very funny. It's got, you know, it's a bunch of little scenes in a row with a guy giving you all these reasons why you should adopt a cat or a dog. Mostly it's focused on cats. And the guy in the ad is just really good. His name is Paul Preston. Apparently he's the brother of a woman who volunteers at the shelter. And I don't know, the guy's just really charming and funny, and it's gotten a really great response from people. And, you know, it's really great for these small organizations when they have something like this go viral. Apparently, they've gotten, they've been deluged with donations and gifts for the cats. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're so busy, they actually couldn't talk to Rebecca, which was a shame. She wanted to interview them about it. Um, but, you know, they're getting phone calls from, like, the Today Show and stuff, too. So I think they're a little busy. Um, but apparently, it also couldn't have happened to a nicer group of folks. So very cool for them. That's great. Well, definitely, I encourage everybody to check out uh, AdFreak, uh, our creative blog on adweek.com, and you'll find these. And, uh, yeah, I think all three of those ran on our uh, on AdFreak. Uh, so definitely check those out and keep an eye on the blog for all sorts of other great creative, as Tim writes it up. Thanks so much for rounding those up, as always. And we are going to move into our uh, just info-packed uh, discussion of all the major events that have been happening in the last week in our industries. Uh, so let's get started. I don't really have a preference. Let's start with the Golden Globes. I guess that was some of, one of the more recent uh, of all these newsy things we've been we've been talking. Um, Chris, if you can just kind of walk us through network-wise, I guess who were the big winners. So it was actually a good night for broadcast TV when, for the last couple of years at award shows, Amazon and Netflix have been getting a lot of attention. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish won uh, best uh, performance by an actress in a television series. That show, of course, on ABC. And then FX took home two awards for Donald Glover for his acting performance in Atlanta, and then the show itself. And then there were three acting awards for AMC's show, The Night Manager, which was a co-production between AMC and the BBC for Olivia Colman, Hugh Laurie, who plays this villain billionaire 
Arms Dealer, and then for Tom Hiddleston as well, three acting awards for that show. So a good night for broadcast networks and a good night for NBC, which carried the awards. They had about 20 million viewers, which was up from the last two years. Uh, a lot of that might have had to do with the fact that they had a lead-in of a Green Bay Packers-New York Giants game, which ended before the awards, which allowed people to come over and watch the show in full. Now, Netflix still did okay. They got, uh, they got the best drama, which, of course, is one of the the, the, the gem and the crown of, uh, of uh, the Golden Globes. And, in fact, they won for The Crown. For The Crown. And Claire Foy won for her portrayal as Princess, uh, excuse me, Queen Elizabeth um, in that show as well. So, uh, and, But as we were talking about with Tim, uh, one of the highlights of the first half hour was uh, the ad for the Netflix series, um, Slanted Clarita Diet with... Drew Barrymore. So that's going to be, um, draw a lot of attention to that. And um, that does come out, as Tim said, on February 3rd, also on Netflix. So I have to admit, I know nothing about the night manager. I had, I don't think I had ever even heard the phrase, the night manager. Am I just like a complete idiot for not knowing about this thing and then watching it just win tons of awards and everybody talking about it? I guess, t- tell me what is the night manager? And- sure. It's based on a John le Carre novel. So it's about this, 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 uh, Iraq War veteran, British veteran, who um, ends up becoming a night manager at a series of hotels in very exotic cities like Cairo, and then he moves to a couple other cities, and something happens in one of these hotel rooms, and and he has to go find the bad guy who did something very terrible in that hotel, and um, he becomes retrained, and and uh, Olivia Coleman, who who plays this sort of underfunded uh, British intelligence officer who no one believes, uh, she's on the right trail of the villain, and in the end. Of course, as always happens, the bad guy gets it, and that the villain in this case was Hugh Laurie. Again, all three of them won acting awards for their portrayal. So it's a great series. It's on Amazon now if you want to watch it. It's six hours, uh, six one-hour episodes. Uh, and if you like um, thrillers and spy novels, it's got a little bit of James Bond. Um, it's a good watch. Katie, had you heard of it? I've never seen it or heard of it. So okay. I, you're not the only one who missed the boat on it. I had, I'd never heard of it before. What's funny is I was watching the Golden Globes from this uh, from this bar called the American Retro in Hell's Kitchen, like a very kind of just normal bar. But the funniest part is, A, I didn't even think they would have the Golden Globes playing. Uh, you know, I was just like, maybe they'll have it on in subtitles. And I get in and they have it like right behind the bar where you would put like, you know, your your bowl game or whatever. And the volumes turned up really loud. And I quickly learned that the bartender is like super into TV and is very opinionated. And so through the whole night, he kept basically providing this running commentary and night manager people, everyone around me is like, what is the nightmare? And he's just like, oh, it's really good. You should watch it. I mean, it's only six hours. You know? And so it was kind of funny. That was, if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have had context for about half the things that won that night. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. I'm glad to hear I'm not the only one who kind of missed it. I, the Crown, I feel like though, um, again, I, I haven't personally had time to watch it yet, but uh, everyone I know who's watched it said it's just, it's just a phenomenal piece of entertainment. It is beautifully shot, uh, well-told story, uh, and in her speech, uh, Claire Foy obviously had to give a shout-out to Queen Elizabeth herself uh, and what she has uh, been able to do for uh, the UK, for Great Britain, for the last 50-some years. The, the casting on that show just seems incredible. Like, the yep. people that, as soon as my wife told me that, uh, what's his name, Matt, uh, Matt Smith, is, is that his name, they, uh, the Doctor Who. Um, yeah, Matt Smith. Yes, thank you. That he plays, uh, he plays her husband. I was like, that mm-hmm. is maybe the perfect. Like he looks exactly like uh, a young version of her husband. There's all everyone I've seen, and and, uh, uh, and John Lithgow, John of course, L- yeah, playing Winston Churchill, who was also nominated for a Golden Globe. 
Yeah, that's kind of I mean, surprising he didn't win it. Yeah, with the Hollywood Foreign Press, you would think so, especially, um, uh, I guess, The Night Manager was, because it was a BBC co-production with AMC, that sort of won out on the acting categories for, for the HFPA. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about uh, People versus O.J. Simpson. That had a really good night. It did. It, uh, it also won Best uh, uh, Miniseries, and uh, Sarah Paulson won for her portrayal as Marsha Clark. Uh, took, swept the Emmys as well. Uh, one uh, actor who was, again, possibly overlooked uh, in that category was Sterling K. Brown, who did win the Emmy. That went to Hugh Laurie for his portrayal in The Night Manager. Great series. Again, if you haven't seen it, uh, good to catch up on on FX. So, again, an- another good night for FX with that, and then also with their series, Atlanta. Katie, were there any shows that you've been a big fan of this past year that did or didn't get their props at uh, the Golden Globes? Yeah, I'm a big Stranger Things fan, and I was actually very surprised that they didn't take anything home. I mean, I guess when you look at that compared to The Crown, The Crown has such a high production quality, and the costumes are beautiful, and the acting's great, but I was kind of pulling for, like, the Stranger Things kids to win something. Stranger Things fits in, it's it's hard to pin that in any one category like to call it a drama or it's funny it's it's scary it's weird like I, I always wonder if shows like that that hit in so many click so many boxes are kind of punished at award shows for for being pretty good at everything but not maybe perfect in any one thing but they did make it into Jimmy Fallon's cold open uh which that was, was hilarious yeah, if you I've haven't seen, seen it, it. Yeah. It's, worth it's worth going back to watch that um and despite technical problems with the show, he came came out on stage and didn't have a teleprompter for a few seconds. So, uh, you know, despite some of that and, and, you know, what some have determined to be Meryl Streep's controversial acceptance speech for the Cecil B. DeMille Award, uh, viewers still watched straight through. I, my favorite was just watching the audience reactions like they would cut. And, and I was so glad to see the memes just exploding out of it, like Christian Slater's look of just intense scrutiny of just sitting there with like his his chin in his in his hand. And I was just like, man, I want to I want to be as attentive to anything as Christian Slater is to. And, and I just kept joking. is like I think what he's thinking is, what is the night manager? <laughs> <laughs> And it was interesting, too, if you if you watch some of the cutaways uh, during her speech or during Tom Hiddleston's speech, which we don't need to go into. He's already sort of apologized for this anecdote that he was talking <laughs> about so being bad. in South Sudan. It was so cringy. Yeah, he, he's, he, he chalked it up to nerves. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, when they would, would flash the audience and some of the actors during Meryl Streep's speech uh, cheering, et cetera, the, a couple of journalists they actually showed who had their hands at their sides and, and weren't. Uh, one way or the other, um, sort of uh, applauding or uh, frowning at what she was saying. So it was, it was. That's that's the great thing about the Golden Globes when they, because it is a dinner, it's a packed room, tables instead of a, an auditorium type setting. Uh, you really get good cutaways of of, of everybody. Well, uh, we should probably move on, but yeah, it was a fascinating um, uh, show, and uh, I, I earnestly enjoyed it. I think watching it from a bar in Hell's Kitchen is my new favorite. I'm going to try to make that an annual tradition if I can find the right bartender. Uh, let's, while we're on the— You know, I also wanted to mention briefly, if we can just talk about the movies for a sec, uh, La La Land seemed to, have do- seemed to dominate. It did. Which was kind of cool. I just saw that movie a couple days ago, and— Deserving? I loved it. I thought—I th- I think so. I mean, it was— you know, it was just, it's a really beautifully made film and it's got, you know, it's all these throwbacks to old classic Hollywood musicals and yeah, and uh, it swept the acting awards. I mean, Emma Stone and, and Ryan Gosling were, were pretty awesome in it too. Yeah. I think it won like seven awards. It did. So, seven for seven. Um, 
and I think it's probably easier at the Golden Globes for a movie like that to win because you you do have the musical comedy on the one one side and the drama on the other side. I think it should be interesting between that and Moonlight. What happens at the Oscars? Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Chris and Tim and Katie, for all weighing in on that. And while we're talking uh, all things television, uh, let's go to the Television Critics Association. What do we call this? The Winter Press Tour. Yeah. The Winter Press Tour and a little bit of a shadow cast over the Winter Press Tour because uh, in uh, December when all the critics were um, planning their trips out there, the networks decided they weren't going to be paneling their executive sessions, um, which was sort of defeats the purpose of bringing all these critics into one room. Uh, Fox relented and they are having their day today actually, but Fox has a great story to tell. They've got 24 Legacy coming up. They of course have the Super Bowl this year, so Jason Lynch uh, who's out there covering for us will have all those stories coming up on the site later today. Uh, but uh, he's also talked to Shonda Rhimes, uh, who paneled yesterday uh, during ABC's Day as Scandal comes back after a prolonged hiatus. So we've got a story up on that and uh, how she says she doesn't pay attention to the ratings because that's out of her element. She can't control what if people watch her show. She just likes to put on good shows. So, um, yeah, lots of news on the site today uh, and, and really for the next week and a half or so as the Winter Press Tour continues. So uh, David Lynch finally reappeared to talk Twin Peaks. What was the update on that? Well, he was very cryptic, very cryptic as David Lynch uh, tends to be. But the fact that he uh, showed up to talk about his the return of Twin Peaks, which, which comes out, it's, it's going to be um, – comes out uh, in May on Showtime, and uh, so he paneled along with the other Showtime folks and um, didn't say much, uh, was asked a lot of questions by the assembled press, um, asked about his sort of creative influence and, and what was his catalyst for what made him to become a storyteller. He said, I didn't want to be a storyteller, I wanted to be a painter, which he also is. If you ever want to buy or see some of his art, it's out there online to take a look at. Um, if he would ever revisit Twin Peaks down the road, of course, this is a TV series that came out in the early 1990s on ABC, and then he did one film, and now it's coming back uh, some 26, 27 years later. Um, and he said he really enjoyed his time working with Showtime, even though he stepped away from the project briefly in 2015. But he's fully on board and, and is, just really wants people to watch the series when it comes back in May. I feel like he should just go full cryptic and just like come out on stage with like a, a music box and he just opens it and there's like a ballerina turning and then he sets it on fire and then he just walks away. And then walks <laughs> away, yeah. Um, that, that was about the equivalent of what he did, but uh, he spoke <laughs> a little bit more. Um, tell us about Carpool Karaoke. We got a little more detail on the, this is to me one of those weird, in the world of spinoffs, to, to turn a recurring bit on uh, James Corden's TV show into its own show, uh, which I believe will be on Apple. Is that an Apple exclusive? Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're milking it for as much as they can. But of course, James Corden can only do so much. So he's tapped as many sort of hosts, uh, 16 different hosts. Uh, That's to a lot. 16 is a whole lot. It is. And... You know, but if you if you have hit on something, and the net, television networks like to do this a lot, they like to the ring the most out of it as they can. So they'll make a go for it with Apple. Katie, do you think this is gonna succeed, or is it? I just, just think be? part of the the success of Carpool Karaoke is James Corden himself. So I think it'll be interesting to see like if it'll actually be entertaining without him there. I think it'll be. I think they announced like a couple of different partnerships like John Legend and Alicia Keys will do one together, which could be good. But I think he carries so much character in the pieces that he does that I don't know how good it will be without him there. 
Yeah, he's that lovable dork that like, like if you pull up next to somebody in traffic and the the dude is just obviously blasting out his face, you know, to Taylor to Taylor Swift or something. You always love that guy, like that person, and uh, and so yeah, it is finding. I worry sometimes that they think that there's just a formula here that they can uh, easily replicate, but I guess we'll find out. Um, the C, uh, CW, uh, we wrote about renewed uh, seven different sh- series, uh, including which I did not realize until our article that uh, it was a crazy ex-girlfriend is the, is the lowest rated. It is. I mean, that's a beloved among a certain crowd. It, it reminded me a bit of... Uh, of the the good wife in the sense of we've reported a lot on that that's a show that stays alive despite kind of low ratings but it does i mean i think it has a a small audience but it has a committed audience um it's a funny show if you haven't seen it check it out um it, it it's based on a character who you know she she built this character essentially on youtube and carried it over uh into the series and cw um you know, because it sort of is the fourth or fifth network, depending on how you look at it out there, they can experiment a little bit more and they can renew series even if they're not hits uh, in terms of ratings uh, because they do have a solid audience. They're obviously, this is a, a network that's geared toward millennials, even if millennials are continuing to not watch broadcast TV. Um, but, you know, they're going to, they're going to, uh, they've cleared the whole slate for, for next season. They're bringing back that, uh, that superhero. Uh, mega show. What is that called? League of Legends of Tomorrow. Legends, Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. And that thing's bad. Yeah. Well. Yeah, but they've become the superhero network, moving Supergirl from CBS over to CW. Um, and you know, we'll, we'll yeah. see how they do. All right. Um, and I've saved the biggest news for last, of course. I mean, the world was shaken to its core to find out finally the Golden Girls exclusive streaming rights. Are gonna go to are gonna go to Hulu. Are gonna go to Hulu. Uh, a huge coup for Hulu. Well, maybe not because I think everybody has seen the Golden Girls multiple times now. Uh, but if you do want to watch it um, hour after hour and watch every season and every episode back to back to back, you can now do that on Hulu. Well, but I mean, a lot of people who grew up um, watching it in syndication uh, have only seen those shortened kind of you know, truncated versions and ones that, so you can now see Golden Girls in all of its director's cut splendor. Uh, I, Golden Girls, like, I, I, Katie, I'm curious about you you and I are in slightly different generations. Like, I grew up when it was on the air. I I really loved it, and which I think is telling that I was like a 14-year-old boy who really enjoyed watching a show about elderly women in Florida. That is telling. I don't know. (laughs) What what does it say? No, no, but I, well, and I grew up just being like, <laughs> is that, is it, you know, just wondering, like, uh, there were a few shows like that in the 80s that seemed like they were created for a certain demographic, but had this much broader appeal. It's like, I grew up loving MASH as a kid, and I don't think that was a show made for, like, 11-year-olds, but to this day, like, some kids are still into it. Katie, I mean, did you watch Golden Girls? Was it ever on your radar? I haven't actually watched it, and I'm very mad at myself that I haven't, because I think it's something I would really enjoy, so I'll, I, I will watch it when it's on Hulu, but I think it just kind of, it missed my generation and then you know it wasn't something anyone in my family had watched or my parents had watched so it just was never really something I got into yeah I mean and it certainly has an appeal with all sorts of different audiences and it's one of those things like you would think it's just kind of the most niche show of all time and it just has this widespread love like I don't think I'd sit down and watch it again um but it's all about the storytelling and it's um it, it has heart and it has some emotion, and I think that even sitcoms that can do that by the end of the show, if you can sort of bring people together and and bring 
you know, culmination to a story and give people a little bit of a laugh. There's there's a new uh, another reboot um, uh, just out on Netflix last week, One Day at a Time, which is another uh, yeah. 1970s series, and and I watched the whole series over the weekend, and and it, it again it sort of is a throwback to that series. It, it's got a different spin now because it's 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 a Hispanic family, Cuban American family based in Southern California, not in Indianapolis where the original series was based. But again, every episode t- touches on very hot button issues like. Uh, homosexuality, like immigration, um, and it's just a really well-told story, and um, you know, encourage people to watch it again. That's on Netflix, uh, another reboot, and um, it's it, it sort of had that feel of of what the Golden Girls does um, when, when you can sit down in front of a TV for 22 minutes and just sort of walk away smiling. I just I love picturing that somewhere there was this movement to bring back one day at a time. Yeah. Like that somebody was just like, guys, I've made this my life mission. Yeah. Like Valerie Bertinelli's biggest fan was just waiting in the wings. And there is a cameo by Mackenzie Phillips. If you remember the original show, she played one of the daughters. What about Schneider? Wasn't that his name? It's Schneider. Yep. The the, the rebooted Schneider is um is a little bit of a different character. He he's, he's he doesn't have like cigarettes super, in his he doesn't not rolled his, up uh, rolled up sleeve. He's a very metrosexual Schneider. That's the way I'll put it. I'm okay with that. Um, okay, well, let's uh, thank you for rounding up and you know definitely check out uh, go to adweek.com, click on our television uh, tab at the top there to see everything that Jason Lynch is filing from uh, the the Television Critics Association Winter Press Tour. Lots of interesting news coming out of that, but. I've brought back uh, a few of our CES crowd. If you listen to last week's episode, we recorded that as everyone was arriving in uh, in Las Vegas. Or, Katie, I think you were on your way maybe the next day. Um, but it hadn't started yet. So a lot of that was just here's what we expect to see. Here's what we think will happen. Uh, for both Tim and Katie, this was your first CES. So, Katie, first, I guess, just tell me what was the experience like of being surrounded by 170,000 of your closest industry friends? It was really overwhelming. Um, I went to the show floor one day and there's just technology everywhere. We tried to shoot or we did shoot a video on the floor and people are just like walking in and out of the shot and testing all these different tech products. I mean, it's a really cool experience, but I could sleep for 24 hours after that. It was exhausting. Tim, what was your uh, your your experience and, and how did it compare? You've covered a lot of events like uh, South by Southwest. How would you say this one compare and what was it like? Well, just as Katie said, it was completely overwhelming. It was so big. It covers so much physical space, which I think is is the one major difference from something like South by. You know, South by is is overwhelming in terms of the programming. You know, I think a couple of years ago when I was at South by, I think there was one hour stretch where there was like 82 panels scheduled for that one hour. You know, CES is like the physical version of that. There's like millions upon millions of square feet of floor of showroom space, and you know, I wandered around uh, the show floor across the uh, in the convention center across the three major halls there, which also have several. You know, there's there's a ground floor and a second floor across three different giant spaces, and I wandered around for better part of a day in one of them, and. You know, there's so many gadgets to, to see, and then there's also so much kind of, there's a lot, so many like s- cell phone cases and things like that, which which aren't really gadgets. They're just kind of like you know merch. I mean, it's 
I don't know, I, but I, en I enjoyed it a lot. You know, there's a lot of agency people there. Um, there was a lot of folks to catch up with this year. Uh, and there was some really interesting tech and, and cool trends too. So I was glad I went, you know, and we, we, we cranked out some stories there. And, I, I, you know, I thought it was a pretty interesting week. My favorite moment, I think, of our all of our CES maybe wasn't officially part of our coverage, but was Katie's Snapchat of being eerily approached by a robot yeah that <laughs> was <it's>, terrifying <laughs> it's just like coming right at her and i think i think all you wrote was like omg help me or whatever yeah. <laughs> it was yeah it was terrifying i looked down and there's this little like knee-high robot on wheels just kind of rolling towards me and it had this weird like tablet almost like face so its eyes were like blinking they were kind of cartoonish and it just kind of looks up at you and like turns its head it's really really creepy yeah and, and and you and i started talking after that about and i'm just curious like were people encouraging you guys because obviously with voice activation with interface with robotics i mean were people vendors trying to get you guys to engage with all these weird interactive and ai styled devices and and what was that i mean can you really test these things out in an environment like ces yeah, I mean, that's that's the challenge. It's just that there's so many people and so much noise that a lot of the voice activation stuff you can't really feasibly test out. It's more they want you to come by and look at the products or um, kind of, I guess, if it's a robot, interact with it. Um, but the one, one of the cool things, actually, was, and Tim can attest to this, we were stationed, our pop-up studio was stationed next to a giant Amazon Alexa Echo device like probably 20 times. I don't know. You could walk inside of it, basically, and you could give it different commands. And it's just like this circular booth that you were inside, and it could play music. We would hear people go in all day, like listening to Justin Bieber and all these different kinds of artists. And so that was a cool way or a cool activation that people could actually go inside and test the capabilities of. But that was away from the show floor. I'm just picturing you like walking by it every hour and just being like, Alexa, subscribe to Adweek. <laughs> should have done that so and there was actually a funny like a bit of a sidebar on that uh kevin eck our editor who is sitting across from me and and does not have a microphone so he can't talk about, but he did cover this on our tv spy blog that uh, there was a funny bit recently where a local news station what city was it in kevin San Diego, um, that they were reporting on uh, how Amazon Echo accidentally ordered a bunch of dollhouses. Is that what it was? And uh, and then by by they were showing how the Echo can accidentally order all these things, and then it triggered everyone's Echoes in all these houses across San Diego to order dollhouses. So it was like it was like this immediate ripple effect of like, look at this flaw in the uh, Amazon Echo, and then ba boom. It, spread across the entire city and, and it's like uh my kids got these voice activated toys from mcdonald's but they got two of them and they realized that if you put them back to back they will just talk to each other in an infinite loop and they discovered this <laughs> at the airport waiting in the terminal and everyone everyone in the gate is just staring at us because it was this nightmare cycle of toys screaming at each other anyway um so back to ces uh tim what did you discover that was actually cool and that you think we might see again well, I think the three biggest trends this year were uh, robots, self-driving cars, and voice assistants. You know, I think VR and AR was was close behind that, but not really front and center. You know, we saw so many robots, uh, self-driving cars. You know, that that technology even a year ago was was way more sort of ethereal than it is today. I think, you know, there's real, uh, there's actually cars that actually do this now. Um, you know, I was talking to a guy from Crispin there who had actually. Uh, uh, ride shared a, a Tesla that 
uh, from Los from Los Angeles to Las Vegas to come to the show, and and they had they had driven driven most of the way under under an auto like an autopilot, which is kind of interesting. So this stuff is actually happening, and then, you know I think voice assistants were really the biggest story in in particular Alexa. I mean Alexa was the sort of very very top I think um, trend of, of this year. I think there's something like 700 devices that were shown at CES are, are, are Alexa enabled in some way, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. And it really shows how Amazon really is ahead of the game. You know, they are ahead of Cortana. They're ahead of Google Home. And what was interesting to me was, was how automotive and voice assistants are coming together. So these two trends that were really big at CES kind of merged together. And, you know, Alexa is going to be in a lot of cars. Uh, you know, so is Cortana. Nissan un, uh, announced a deal with, with to to put Microsoft Cortana in their in their cars. Uh, Google Home is going to be in, I believe, Hyundai and also in some Chrysler models like the Chrysler 300. And so, in addition to you know the hardware uh, applications of of how do you make a car drive by itself, uh, there was also a lot of attention paid uh, this week at CES to what what's the experience like of being in a car. You know, can, how do you talk to your car? How, how does the car tell you things beyond just, you know, where you're going? So I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, beyond that, I mean, I saw this crazy thing on, on the show floor from a, a company called Furion, which I'd never heard of this company before. And they're, they're a very strange company. They make all sorts of stuff, everything from TVs to dishwashers, uh, you know. And I, I guess, I don't know if they're really high-end. I think they're pretty high-end. Uh, but but I walked I was walking around the show floor and I came upon this structure it's this giant white metal structure with all these sort of interlocking beams to it and I couldn't tell at first what it was and uh, a guy kind of climbed up into the middle of it and it turns out it's this um, what they call an exobionic suit so it's kind of like if you've seen uh, Aliens where Ripley gets into the the loader and kind of like you know fights the the dragon and the loader. That's that's kind of what an exobionic suit is. You kind of the human is in the middle, and and you're operating this thing, that that the, the machine around you then works, and it's this four-legged, um, basically giant running machine, and they're they're supposedly building it just to race. Although I think it could have probably military uh, applications too. It's this. Uh, I, I tweeted about it a few days ago. It's, it's basically you get in the middle, and you can run inside this thing up to 25 miles an hour or something. And uh, as far as just like pure wow factor, um, uh, something like this I don't think has ever been made on this scale, at least uh, in the public sphere. So that was pretty awesome too. So you know, the big trends, but there are also these one-offs um, at CES that when you stumble upon them, it's uh, it can be pretty delightful too. What about you, Katie? Was there like a weird thing you found that was like an only at CES kind of moment? Outside of the robot, which was definitely still giving me nightmares. Um, there was a this kind of cool like wearable band that I we talked about on one of the videos I worked on. Um, it's called Feel, and instead of being like a tra fitness tracker, it tracks your emotions. So it can like read your heartbeat, it can take um, the temperature of your skin, I guess, like all these weird different things. And there's an app connected to it, and it can tell you if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're nervous, stressed, and you can actually send your emotions to other people. So if you're like having a bad day, you can be like, I'm really sad today, don't talk to me, or like, I'm really angry. I thought that was kind of cool. And I guess, I don't know how how well it will actually do and if people will actually want a product like that, but I thought it was kind of cool. I feel like I have so many technical options now to know how people are feeling, like namely yeah. Twitter. 
right? <laughs> but this is so it's so authentic. This is a wearable. It's like though. actually telling like based on your your body's temperature <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of those um, Internet of Things gadgets in that video you did, Katie, were pretty cool. Like that high mirror thing. Yeah, that was cool. Um, I think that one's cool also just because you can like really see how brands could get involved with a product like that. It's so basically it's a mirror that you stand and it kind of reads all your imperfections. So if you have like dark spots, baggy um, bags under your eyes, it highlights the areas that are not great and tells you how you could fix them. So like a skincare brand could read your skin and say like, oh, you have dry skin, you should use these products. So that was kind of cool. I'm just picturing like me like looking in this mirror and it's just like, you know, we don't even have time to get into it. <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it reacts to every kind of person. I didn't do it because I didn't want to know. <laughs> there was also that thing uh, called Mimu, which was cool. It's like uh, it's this Alexa powered um, digital uh, station for kids. And I guess you put it in your kid's room and when your kid wakes up, it can kind of talk to it and It'll, it'll tell them, you know, what kind of clothes they should wear depending on, you know, the, um, how warm it is outside and things like that. And I'm sure there's like a hundred different things that, that it could talk to kids about. I thought that was really interesting, you know, and, and all these Alexa products are so important to brands now because, you know, they want to get like as, as Alexa more and more becomes part of the conversation within a home, you know, that that's so important to be involved in that if you're a brand, I think. You know, I was talking to, again, the Crispin guys, the, the CTOs over at Crispin, and they were talking about how, you know, one of their big clients obviously is Domino's, and they've been so ahead of the curve on so much tech. And they said, well, you know, like half of our people are ordering online now. And, you know, they the way they position it is that, you know, Domino's is an, e an e-commerce company that happens to make pizza. And, you know, as, as more and more people start to order things through Alexa – you know, brands are going to have to build skills for Alexa to so that, you know, she knows that your brand exists and she might even steer people to your brand. So I think that's, we're at the very beginning of that. And I, but I think it's ramping up so fast and, you know, agencies, a lot of agencies were in, you know, Vegas last week just to learn about Alexa and just to learn about, you know, how it works and why, uh, you know, what kinds of uh, options their brands could have for being a bigger presence in people's conversations within their home. And, you know, it's not going to work for every brand, but if you're ordering something online and you're going to ask Alexa for it, that's, you know, Alexa becomes almost like a person within your word of, word of mouth marketing is the way that I see it. So it's pretty interesting. So an, another topic that it sounds like I think we all knew was going to be a big point of discussion was VR. Uh, a year ago at CES, VR was about to hit the market uh, for consumer availability. Uh, the Oculus, the HTC Vive, Samsung Gear, you know, all these devices were really just finally starting to come out. And so this was the first CES since that stuff has, has become commercially available. Um, but it sounds like the discussion was still largely around what is holding back VR, because this year has not seen the explosion of mainstream adoption, uh, and nor did any of us really expect it. Um, but I mean, Katie, what did you, what did, what was the tenor of the dialogue around VR at, at, in your experience at CES? Um, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, more, more, or more companies were coming out with headsets like um, Intel and Lenovo and Samsung said it sold 5 million. So obviously people want to try VR, um, but I was, I had an interview with someone who was saying, you know, there's really just haven't been any great examples recently of good VR experiences. 
and her reasoning for that was that you know the demand is so high for for VR, but we the the industry hasn't really figured out the best way to tell a narrative or to tell a story on that device. And a lot of times you get people that are saying, you know, comparing or saying that 360 video is essentially the same as virtual reality when it's in fact not. It's more virtual reality. There's more um, interaction going on. It's kind of more gaming in a sense, whereas 360 video, you're kind of just dropped in a place and you're looking at a story that's happening. You're not interacting. And so I think it's just been interesting to see the fact that you haven't had really great examples of good immersive experiences in VR. And I think that's going to be a challenge for the industry moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's just this physical limitation, too, of like the difference between 360 video and true VR is the ability to walk around within it. And I, I think all of us, whether it's here in New York or anywhere, is you are very physically limited in your ability to to move around. And I was demoing a VR experience yesterday, and I probably had all of like five square feet, you know, because it was in an incubator. And it was like, yeah, try not to uh, bump into the desk or into the, you know, it's like you can move around, but you can't move around. Um, I think the fact is it's still a novelty, you know, like when uh, there was no shortage, first of all, of VR experiences to, to try. In fact, we were staying at the at uh, the MGM, and you walk into the MGM lobby, and the the gold lion in the middle of the lobby uh, last week was wearing a headset, and it was you know for some uh, there's a Cirque du Soleil show inside uh, that hotel right now, and it's a you could preview the experience in this. Uh, you, you know they had people there giving you headsets to preview the experience before you went and saw the show. And I mean, there's VR everywhere. You go to the show floor and you, you couldn't turn around without seeing someone with a headset on, which is great. You know, and Samsung had this very, very big at the very entrance to the main, uh, the, the central hall over at the LVCC. They had um, this crazy, like almost uh, almost like amusement park ride where eight people would kind of get into this thing and, and uh, they'd have their headsets on. And it was basically a simulation of, of going through an asteroid field in space. Uh, and the whole the whole ride would kind of spin you upside down, and it looked, you know, frankly, kind of horrifying. But I think people had a pretty cool time doing that. But again, it's like one of these, like that's a one-off experience, and I, the scale's not there yet in terms of the hardware. And more importantly, I think the content is, you know, it's just kind of uh, cartoony still, mostly. You know, I mean, even with 360, like, you know, I have, as as most media journalists have, I've got like, you know, 50 different. Uh, Google Cardboards on my desk. So, uh, you know, I've introduced this to my kids and, like, uh, you know, have them look at the videos. Uh, some of, you know, there's a few apps you can download where you can look at a bunch of new, you know, new 360 content, whether it's exploring nature or going on a roller coaster or whatever it is. And I think it's kind of telling that my kids look at it and they kind of enjoy it and then they just completely forget about it. They don't ask about it the next day. Uh, you know, they, whereas if they want to play Mario Run or they want to watch a movie or they have it, their favorite TV shows, they're so much more connected to that. And I know that, you know, we're talking more about adult-focused content uh, in terms of, you know, what brands are creating for, for people. Uh, but I think it's kind of telling that, that kids who are so wowed by the simplest things, uh, you know, aren't that into 360. So who knows? I mean, I think that was the sense I got at, at uh, you know, at CES was that VR is great and will be great. And there's all sorts of applications coming that are kind of interesting. And, and there's, there's these headsets with, with AR where you can interact with your real environment with some animations in there. And it's all great, but we just haven't seen that, that really wonderful piece of content yet that's really going to convince more than a niche of people to, to try it. 
I, I think kids are actually a really good example because kids, especially right now, are unfazed by the fact that we can do something. You know what I mean? Like adults are like, oh my God, I've never been able to do this. Kids are just like, okay. You know, that, that yeah. everything is magic to them. So they're just like, all right, but if it's not interesting, then they don't care. Right. So it's not it's not this fascination with what you can do. It's just, you know, what what you have done and whether it's actually compelling. So I, I do think they will be the first, uh, you know, the bellwether of, of when we find something that's actually really engaging, consistently engaging in VR. Um, well, this has been a, a fascinating roundup. I definitely encourage everybody to check out, you know, if you Google Adweek CES, you'll find all of our coverage. Uh, thanks so much, Katie, for going out there. Tim, thanks for getting out there and covering your first one. We also had Marty Swant uh, out there um, who we couldn't squeeze into the podcast today, but uh, he filed some great stuff from it as well and I'm sure has some crazy stories that I can't wait to catch up on on the gadgets he played with. Uh, so, yeah, good roundup. And uh, Chris Aarons, thanks for joining us, our media editor and talking Golden Globes and uh, – Television Critics Association and all the other. Happy to help. Um, well, this uh, week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, our theme music is by Home. Don't forget, you can drop us an email at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Uh, and if you haven't already, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your uh, your podcast from. Those reviews uh, not only make us feel warm and fuzzy, but also help uh, new listeners find the podcast. And so we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and it is a big pleasure to have our whole panel here. We will be back next week to talk about even more marketing fun. Have a good week. Have a good week.